I'm Michael Cross, host of the KOSU Daily Podcast. Every weekday, I bring you the biggest Oklahoma stories of the day with reporting and analysis from our team of journalists and partners. Get the news you need to start your day in less than 10 minutes. Find the KOSU Daily in your podcast feed and subscribe now. This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by Oklahoma State Medical Association, physicians dedicated to providing and increasing access to health care for all Oklahomans. More on its vision and mission at okmed.org. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Over the weekend, Governor Stitt endorsed presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis. The endorsement came as the Florida governor was visiting our state. The endorsement also resulted in a swift rebuke from former President Donald Trump. Over social media, Trump blasted Stitt and took credit for the governor's re-election win last year. Neva, what are your thoughts on this development? Well, first of all, I think it's important to note the significance of the uh, Governor Stitt's endorsement because he is the first um, Republican governor to officially endorse Ron DeSantis's uh, candidacy for the presidency. So uh, this endorsement came last Saturday late afternoon in Tulsa, well-attended uh, rally that was actually an event that was put on by uh, Governor DeSantis' uh, super PAC, not officially the presidential campaign, but uh, these these two men have um, uh, appeared to have become good friends. They're they're governors, very like minded, conservative states. Uh, uh, DeSantis endorsed uh, Stead in 2022 in the in the gubernatorial race, and then the, um, Stead has traveled to Florida to uh, attend at least one fundraiser for DeSantis earlier this year. So not a big surprise. It was clear he was weighing in. I think what did um, is noteworthy in terms of the endorsement also is the fact that Stitt is doubling down and really putting his political capital on the line. He made, in making it official, he said that uh, uh, words to the effect, we're going to win Oklahoma. And so uh, with eight months to go and a, and a, a field that's expanding in the presidential uh, primary, when Oklahomans, uh, Republicans, go to the polls on March the 5th next year, to express their preference in the the uh, primary, it it will be interesting to see how all of this shakes out. Ryan, well, and presumably the governor has a lot of political capital to spend right now. He was just reelected by a fourteen point margin. Uh, I suspect that Donald Trump played very little, if any, uh, role in giving uh, the governor any votes that the governor already didn't have in the general election uh, last fall. So. Um, you know, I, but there is a very strong cult of Trump. Uh, there are, you know, Trump voters are Trump voters through and through. Uh, you know, Trump notoriously said uh, years back that he could, you know, shoot a person in broad daylight and people would still vote for him. Uh, and that's that's kind of the truth. There's really uh, nothing that this guy can do uh, that will detract his core supporters from showing up and supporting Donald Trump. Um, so. I, I do think that the governor has some political capital. It will be uh, interesting to see how this unfolds uh, when you have, you know, your local governor, your your governor in your state, 
um, that has this uh, has you know what I consider political capital. So much political capital that people you know were speculating you know somewhat that he might be one of the people that entered the very crowded, potentially crowded Republican field of candidates running for president uh, after his big fourteen point win with you know tens of millions of dollars spent against him, and yet he still came out victorious. Um, I do think that Neva's right. First Republican governor, uh, well, any governor, it's not like Sanders is going to be endorsed by a Democratic governor, uh, but but uh, first governor to uh, support uh, DeSantis. Uh, well, outside of DeSantis himself, uh, of course. Yeah, well, presumably. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we think so. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that um, so he's got two governors now uh, and you, know, you know, always vote for yourself. Um, I, I think that it does put Governor Snit in a strong position of. Uh, you know, in, in the event that DeSantis wins, um, you know, whether that's you know, Governor Stitt, you know, wanting you know, federal investment in the state of Oklahoma, whether that's Governor Stitt looking for some sort of an appointment, maybe a, a place on the ticket himself. Um, and, you know, I for you know, Donald Trump's tweet, you know, is something that people that love Donald Trump read it and they're like, oh, yay. And people that don't or are in, uh, different to him, they don't care. Uh, 76 districts. Uh, I love that he, he says that we have 76 districts in Oklahoma. It's like, dude, we've got 77 counties. And, you know, of course, he takes credit for being the first person to win all 77 counties. Also not true. But of course, uh, you know, Donald Trump is not a person who uh, has a very strong commitment to the truth. Uh, so we shouldn't or, or facts or knowledge or, you know, really, really much right other than himself. He's very committed to himself. Um, so, you know, that shouldn't surprise any of us, but again, if you like Donald Trump, it doesn't matter if he thinks that we have 76 districts and seven, instead of 77 counties, you like Donald Trump. Um, so how that unfolds, uh, will be interesting. I, I don't think that there's really a way that this endorsement hurts governor Stitt in any way, even with Donald Trump coming after him. You know, I think it's interesting too. I mean, the fact that, as you say, Ryan, I mean, uh, it was not, I think, a surprise for anyone that uh, uh, that there was this lashing out by Trump. I mean, that's been pretty much his uh, his normal reaction um, in in the early days of this uh, presidential uh, campaign, as it's beginning to really gain you know gain steam, gain gain candidates. But I think the fact that uh, there was pushback from uh, Governor Stitt's campaign manager, who basically pointed out in a tweet after um, uh, Trump's tweet that basically reminding people that it was Ted Cruz that uh, beat Donald Trump in the 2016 presidential preference primary here in Oklahoma. Trump finished second that year. And 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 Cruz, in fact, won a majority of the 77 counties in that uh, GOP presidential preference primary. So uh, while Donald Trump, the numbers are clearly strong in Oklahoma, the polls can remain so. It's it's a long way till we uh, see who the nominee is going to be next next year for the Republicans. And I think um, I think this first pass in Oklahoma, the fact that I think does point to the fact that we will see a lot of presidential campaign activity among these Republican candidates here over the next eight months. The state house gathered on Monday and representatives were able to override Governor Stitt's veto on tribal license tags and extended the special session until the end of July. 
But the Senate did not meet and measures passed in the House also have to go through the upper chamber. Ryan, will the extra time allow them to get to more of the vetoes from Governor Stitt? Well, I think so. Uh, And it seems like they'll get there well before the end of July. Uh, You know, from from what we're hearing, the Senate's going to come back at the at the end of June um, and take up at at the very least uh, these two veto overrides. Now, whether they take up other uh, matters is is another question. Uh, and, 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 you know, can they take up those matters uh, at this point? You know, do, will they have enough time? Because if you don't have the Senate and the House uh, in the building at the same time, you know, that adds uh, a significant delay in being able to move measures through the legislature. During a regular session, when all of the members are expected to be there and they're, uh, you know, they're almost always there Monday through Thursday uh, working, and, you know, folks go back to the districts on Fridays for the most part. But when you've got everybody there and you're able to get a quorum, um, you can do a lot. But when you're in a summer break and you have legislators that have gone back to their jobs uh, that they might have outside the legislature, you know, they're out in their district, some of them already running for reelection. Uh, they're on family vacations. Uh, they're, you know, they're, they're being, uh, you know, they're, they're doing kind of the normal things that people do in the summer, trying to get them all back into that building uh, at a given time is a very difficult process. And so when you're trying to do that with the two different chambers, uh, it can lead to a lot of disconnect. So I think that moving that deadline out uh, was necessary if, you know, if the Senate decides to, because there, I mean, there, there is a veto that's going to have to start in the Senate uh, on one of these compacts. Mm-hmm. So you've got to give the House enough time to organize its members to get back uh, and, and vote over on the House side. I think that they'll be able to do that. But I, I do think that it means that what is going to come out of this uh, special session is going to be very limited from this point moving forward. Neva. Well, and, and I think you're right, Ryan. I mean, the early conversation was that the Senate would uh, potentially come in June 19th. Now the date looks like it will be likely to be June 26th, but you're right. I think, uh, I think getting, making sure you've got enough members uh, that can come on that designated date once it's set is the critical piece. I mean, the the ability to do the overrides on these um, uh, uh, tribal compacts, uh, I think the votes, as we've talked about before, were veto-proof margins uh, when they were first passed. I don't think there's any, uh, I've heard no real concern that these won't uh, be overridden um, once lawmakers get back in both chambers and take care of their business. And you're right, there's a give and take on several of these bills that have to move, you know, from one chamber to the other. So, but given given the fact that the legislative leaders, um, when they were, they were given really a fiscal impact look at uh, uh, what the uh, ramifications of not uh, overriding these uh, bit vetoes by the governor, it basically, it, you know, paints a very negative uh, picture on the, on the state budget. So I think there's an urgency to come in to get it done and then, uh, you know, leave many of these other questions likely uh, over to the next uh, legislative session. Although this special session may, you know, may m- well move into uh, July, and they may come back more than just uh, one time or two. I think that's an open question. So at least uh, there's been indications uh, that that conversation has been in play. I don't think there's anything definitive at this point. I was just going to say, if they get to a point where you know, they, there's a there's a crisis, uh, you know, that they could always extend that special session out uh, even mm-hmm. further. 
and even amend the call of the special session. Uh, I think that that's doubtful, but that option does exist. And I think though, I think one thing that could be a potential reason would be the uh, the fact that these ARPA funds are still somewhat in flux, and the governor is a key piece in that equation. The uh, lawmakers have uh, uh, allocated, said where they want uh, these dollars to go, but it's a process where everyone uh, is a stakeholder in the in the game. So that could be uh, something that uh, could require. Um, more conversation and more time for legislators to be back in this special session. One of the bills vetoed by Governor Stitt when he was upset with the state Senate not passing his tax and education bills could impact regulation of chiropractors in the state. The bill extended the sunset for the Board of Chiropractic Examiners. Neva, what does this mean for the committee? Well, I think, I mean, not not as much as it might sound on the upshot of just a headline, because really what you have here, and I think uh, what has already been stated even by the executive director of the of the uh, Board of Chiropractors, is that they're going to continue their mission. They're going to continue issuing licenses, doing renewals, do the, the work that they're called to do. And there will be, uh, I, I think there will be the ability to uh, come in and uh, again, address address this uh, address this matter and the fact that there is this one year kind of period that allows for this uh, um, transition, whatever it might be. So I think I think it's something that was caught in the tantrum twenty. I think it's something that uh, uh, will be unwound when lawmakers get get back in and deal with it, whether it has to be in this in this. Uh, um, session that the special session or whether it'll have to be next year i think clearly this will be addressed uh it's something that just got caught in a political skirmish and really was of no one's design ryan tantrum 20 neva is that is that your phrase Did no you i think that's a that? phrase that's been out there i think that's a phrase that's been <laughs> yes. out there okay yeah. several times yeah, so, yeah it has been said before that's really that's like like that's a really great phrase. I was like, if if that's yours, we need to make sure that you get credit for it. No, it's not mine. Um, you know, I, I mean, if you look at some of the quotes from Senator uh, Greg McCourtney, who's the the floor leader in the Senate, you know, he talked about just the effect of these uh, these these large numbers of vetoes uh, that the governor affected over you know, the last couple of months of the legislative session, uh, in part in retaliation uh, to the state Senate, in part uh, because the governor had legitimate uh well i mean i don't the governor felt that there were legitimate uh policy concerns with with some of these bills and so that led to the veto um and what senator mccourtney was saying is as a floor leader i mean that's that's really the person that is uh in both chambers the floor leader in both chambers uh you know they're they're kind of the quarterback out there i mean they're they're calling the plays they're they're lining up uh you know they're making sure that that everything is lined up for to make uh, that the agenda of, of legislation that their caucus in particular uh, wants to get heard and get through the legislative process happens. And whenever you throw a number of vetoes out there, especially vetoes that both chambers or one chamber feel important to override, it can consume a large amount of time in the legislature. Uh, I think Senator McCourtney uh, said that it took up a day, that they took a, a full working day uh, just to address some of those initial rounds of, of vetoes. Um, and when that is happening 
and you have a legislative any even during a normal legislative session, but especially during this legislative session where so much of the oxygen in the room was taken up uh, by the education fight that lasted almost until the very end of the legislative session, uh, there wasn't a lot of time to do everything else. Uh, you know, even if you were just trying to you know, put the final touches on the budget in those last couple of weeks, uh, that was difficult in and of itself, let alone trying to figure out how are we going to d- address all of these vetoes. And I, things just fall through the cracks. Fortunately, as, as Neva said, there's this one year safe harbor uh, for the board of examiners so that they'll be able to continue to operate. They'll be able to continue to regulate chiropractors in the state of Oklahoma for the safety of Oklahomans that are that are going to chiropractors. Um, but it does mean that the legislature is going to have to take action next year uh, to either overturn this or pass new legislation um, to make sure that it can continue to move forward beyond 2024. Yeah, because it was a deal where the clock just really literally mm-hmm. seemed to run out on this issue. I mean, the, the Senate voted to override it, uh, that the House adjourned before they could they took up the override. But the House, it was unanimous. Uh, I think the votes 86 to zero when they uh, when it the first time it went through. So there's no there's no opposition to this. It's strictly a matter of, um, as you say, Ryan, I mean, when you start when you start wielding the veto pen and it just flies all over the place and it's not directed to one or two particular things that you are really invested in making a veto message on or making sure, trying to make sure uh, from the governor's chair that you can uh, stop something. But in this instance, it was none of that. And so we'll see it fixed at some point, uh, how that how that happens. But the Oklahoma Board of Chiropractic Examiners oh, uh, is in a good place in terms of the legislature making sure that uh, their board continues, I think, without uh, uh, without any hiccup and can move forward. And Governor Stitt put his veto pen to a bill with new regulations to the medical marijuana industry. It would have added restrictions on who can get patient cards and how much THC can be in a single servant. Ryan, what was in this legislation? There were a lot of things in this legislation, in this piece of legislation. Uh, and, you know, it, what it became was the omnibus marijuana bill. There were some marijuana bills that were passed earlier this session that gave the attorney general, uh, OMA, uh, and the Oklahoma Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, some additional uh, regulatory and enforcement powers. Um, But aside from those, just about every other medical marijuana subject uh, that the legislature considered this session, many of which started out as their own individual bills, uh, got all piled into this one piece of legislation at the end uh, of session. And I know that Senator Jessica Garvin, uh, who was working on this from the very beginning beginning of session, did her uh, best to try to you know, put in the portions that, that folks felt were good and, and tried to, you know, tried to come up with a, a bill that had something that everybody could live with. And um, but as is the case, whenever you've got an omnibus bill like this, you're going to find uh, opportunities for the governor to find disagreement. And that's exactly what happened. The governor even said there were parts of this bill that he liked a lot, um, you know, and, and things that just kind of make common sense. Like, you know, patients under the age of 18 uh, don't really need to be using any sort of combustible smoking marijuana product. 
you know, that's that just makes sense. I mean, people, even people in the industry, uh, you're, it's going to be rare that you find somebody that says, oh, yeah, we need to make sure that people under 18 can smoke a joint. Um, so just putting that in policy makes a lot of sense. Uh, but I'm, you know, I'm fairly certain that the thing that the governor found the most disagreement with was the delay in uh, the increased in license, the increase in licensing fees. Um, you know, Senate Bill 437 would have delayed that for a year. Uh, in 2022, the legislature increased this tiered or introduced this tiered licensing structure that may, that basically made all medical marijuana business licenses more expensive and more expensive for those that were making more money or, or producing more product. Um, this would have delayed that. And I think that there are reasonable arguments on both sides here to say that if you want to help out the, the good operators that are trying to follow the law but are struggling in a very tight market right now, delaying that helps them. There's also the flip side that says by increasing the amount of these licenses, uh, you make it such that the business participants in the, in the state have more skin in the game uh, and you can weed out some of the actors that, that may not really uh, you know, be sophisticated enough to operate uh, in a very regulated market. Um, and the governor ultimately came down on that side, I believe, on the, on the delay and fee increases and, and said no. Uh, and vetoed it. I mean, this is very similar to what happened in back. If you go back to, I believe, 2020, when the governor vetoed a big omnibus medical marijuana bill, then uh, there were a number of things that the governor agreed with, but ultimately he didn't like uh, the provision in the bill that allowed for delivery uh, of mar medical marijuana. And so he vetoed the bill and said, we weren't ready for that. Um, I think the, the, the message is here that if you if you really want if the legislature wants to move medical marijuana policy um, the way that they uh, have succeeded in doing that and they succeeded in 2022 in doing that was you know moving individual items as much as possible so that you don't have a bunch of things a bunch of policy changes all in one bill. Neva, I think it, it, you're right, Ryan. When you start talking about an omnibus bill, you're you're talking high stakes because. You may have a lot of stakeholders that have something in there that they want and like, but what you also tend to have is uh, enough in the bill that you find a uh, pause with either uh, people in the industry that, that's, uh, that's involved or lawmakers themselves who begin to get a lot of questions or have questions themselves. So packing it all in one, one large bill um, is generally a very high-risk proposition, and I think that's what we saw in this instance with uh, Senator Garvin's bill, and you were addressing so many different topics, and as you say, even the one that you mentioned about uh, minors under 18, which I think the vast majority of Oklahomans agree should not have access uh, and should not be able to uh, um, uh, be able to uh, have a card and be able to do do this, the, the problem was, again, it, it was in the, the details of how they rolled it out, saying that uh, the person uh, over uh, under 18 currently enrolled in a public school, and that drew into question, does that mean uh, a college or university? Does it mean just K through 12? Originally, the intent intent appeared to be K through 12. But again, language uh, becomes the hair splitting proposition in these bills. And so uh, not only did the governor have a lot of questions, but you had lawmakers have a lot of questions. You had everyone across the board 
uh, weighing in. And finally, it, uh, you know, it really blew the blew the bill up and they'll have to come back. I think you're right, Ryan. They're going to have to pick and choose what are the issues that uh, uh, either lawmakers or others want to see move forward in the next session. And can they can they make them sole items and sell that uh, to the legislature and to the governor as something that's needed um, it, with the backdrop of what I thought was interesting, this total package seemed to be a move toward a true medical program for medical marijuana, um, not what we really see today, which is a much broader, many people would say, bordering on, you know, kind of the uh, recreational side being more more dominant. And and that was something that we talked about even when voters went to the polls to decide on recreational marijuana. So um, not only does OMMA, but a lot of folks have a lot of a lot of work to do, I think, here in the interim to um, decide which pieces need to be back on the table next session. And and just to clarify, Senator Gar on, on the on the patients under 18, uh, Senator Garvin's bill would not have restricted uh, it would would not have eliminated the uh, the possibility that somebody under eighteen could be a patient. Um, but what it would have done was it would have uh, limited the types of products that those minor patients uh, had access to. You know, basically, you couldn't buy flour or pre rolled joints or something like that. But you could have edibles or tinctures, uh, you know, something like that. And it would have also given the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority the ability to establish qualifying conditions for those patients under eighteen. Uh, which, you know, uh, it would not have established a qualifying conditions component for patients over the age of 18, which would be a, a very dramatic change uh, to the program. But, you know, really, you know, looking at, you know, the way that the program you know, treats minors and the way that minors are able to participate. So just wanted to clarify that because it wouldn't it wouldn't have ended uh, minor patients. It just would have changed uh, how they could participate in the program. But did it not uh, change the fact that uh, minors would have to obtain recommendations from two doctors instead of one? Wasn't that part of the the uh, the bill as well, Ryan? I mean, that uh, so made that, it more difficult. That seemed, that seemed to be a change as well. Yeah. So they are minors already have to have recommendations from two physicians. This would have oh. changed um, the require. This would have. This would have. Uh, restricted, you know, where those physicians or how, how you can get those recommendations. For example, it would have prohibited that um, it would have prohibited that you get both recommendations from a doctor through telemedicine, for example, you know, basically, you know, saying if, if a minor is going to have a medical marijuana recommendation, that a doctor actually needs to see this person. Um, and then it would have, like I said, it would have created um, the, uh, it would have created the authority for the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority to established qualifying conditions. So rather than a doctor, you know, for example, with my medical marijuana patient recommendation, uh, my doctor doesn't have to say, this is why Ryan needs this. Uh, my doctor can say Ryan needs this uh, and I can get a recommendation. But if I were a minor, my doctor would have to say, this is why Ryan needs it. And it would have had to fit with one of the qualifying conditions that OMA would have ultimately established. I think that we'll probably see these changes come back again next session. And I think that on a lot of these matters, you'll find overwhelming support and you'll probably get the governor's signature. Um, and the ones that do have a lot of open ended questions or some debate, um, again, those will be you know, better settled, I think, in a, you know, a single subject bill uh, that doesn't have a whole bunch of other policies that lawmakers have to consider.
Oklahoma's approval of a Catholic charter school could open the door for other religious groups to get taxpayer dollars to open an institution. Already, there's been interest from the Universal Society of Hinduism and the Satanic Temple. Neva, what are your thoughts on these groups' interest for charter schools? Well, I think it's what we talked about last week and even times before, that this does open the door for a lot of other uh, uh, religious uh, religious school possibilities, at least in the conversation and applications. So knowing that ultimately, I think uh, the general consensus is that this will be something uh, to be eventually decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. But in the meantime, I mean, you have, um, I mean, you have the door wide open, and I think it does allow, and we will continue to see these groups and religions and organizations uh, uh, coming forward and uh, being part of the conversation. There's a big question whether some of them would uh, legitimately um, be in line to have uh, application. There's uh, some of these uh, groups, not necessarily uh, organized religions, but others. But you also have weighing in at the same time. You had uh, the rabbi of the uh, and who's also the president of the Interfaith Alliance here in Oklahoma uh, coming out and saying that this was not a this was not a good idea um, uh, that the funding a, a religious school with taxpayer dollars uh, is something that uh, um, in her estimation was was not responsible was not a good idea that it would lead to um, I think uh, in her words uh, proselytizing students. And uh, and that it was basically something where families uh, would be able to offer something they like better than their their current options. But I think this taking mo- taking public tax dollars and uh, the thought of being able to open the door completely in Pandora's box for what would ultimately be charter schools that could be approved under under this uh, uh, under this scenario is uh, I think gives a lot of people pause, but it also gives a lot of people uh, a reason to have a bigger conversation in in their circles if this is something that they want to be engaged in potentially in the future. Ryan. You know, when you open up a can of worms, you should not be surprised that there are worms inside. Uh, that's because that's where we're at right now. Uh, everyone knew that this was going to happen. Um, I think that some of the groups uh, that are that are talking about establishing schools uh, in the state of Oklahoma, uh, they're probably not very serious. Well, they may be serious about applying. I don't know how serious they are in, you know, the the actual um, you know administration of a faith based school in Oklahoma versus you know just trying to get into a, a newspaper article about something. Um, but that really doesn't matter uh, because. At the end of the day, if the, if the state of Oklahoma opens this door, if somebody submits an application to the state of Oklahoma and they meet all of the other criteria and the only thing uh, that is, um, you know, questionable is the the religious nature of the applicant um, or the, the, the religious re- in, uh, doctrine of the applicant and, and how that would be incorporated into the educational component of the school, the state cannot discriminate. I mean, they just simply cannot discriminate. And we're hearing a lot about these religious, uh, these faith-based schools uh, that would be opened up. We don't know, you know, how or they would be, whether they would be allowed to discriminate against uh, students that don't uh, adhere to that faith. 
you know, how are students that uh, if you have a school that's, you know, even just with a Catholic school, a non-Catholic student, uh, are they treated differently uh, than the Catholic student in that school? Uh, we don't know that. Are there if, if a student by their very nature is uh, an offense to uh, a religion's you know, viewpoint on the world, maybe that's because of uh, their their gender or maybe uh, because of their um, sexual orientation. You know, can the school discriminate against them? I, I would say absolutely not, but that's potentially what these schools are asking to do right now. The other thing that folks ought to consider is we're hearing a lot about faith-based applicants. Um, I'm wondering how long it will be before uh, an applicant arises that is, uh, you know, not sectarian in nature, but you know, skeptical of religion. You know that you know a, an atheist-based uh, uh, charter school um, that incorporates active skepticism uh, and challenges to religious uh, authority into their instruction. Uh, you know, how, how are state leaders going to react to that? I, I think that whenever you start to uh, look at the the polling, for, I think it's the Pew Charitable Trust does their survey of belief. And when you when you look at um, who is, you know, um, uh, has the, the most continued prejudice against them, it's non-believers and atheists. Uh, so wait until that application comes through. And, uh, and, and just, you know, finally, you know, I represented uh, uh, Dr. Bruce Prescott, uh, uh, a reverend in the in the in the Baptist Church, um, and the effort in back in 2015 uh, to remove the uh, Ten Commandments monument from the state capitol. You know, he didn't uh, ask me to represent him in that case because he finds the Ten Commandment offensive. Uh, in fact, it's it's a core part of his sincere beliefs. Um, he felt that the um, that the that by intersecting religion with the government, that it cheapened his religion, that it brought his religion down uh, to the to the level of politics, uh, and that's I think kind of what we're seeing right now is this uh, you know fair you know people that have very sincere beliefs. I've talked to Catholics in the state of Oklahoma uh, that are very disappointed uh, about the archdiocese decision here because they feel that. It cheapens their faith that they sincerely uh, believe and, and is, a, is a very important part of their life. You know, it's interesting. I, I think when all is said and done, all of these groups can weigh in, have conversations, and uh, uh, be, be the headlines for a while. But ultimately, it's going to be this state board in Oklahoma that has to review applications, that has to uh, make decisions, take votes, and say yes or no. And we already have seen the other the other piece in this equation that I find interesting is that the attorney general weighed in very strongly mm -hmm. up front when all of this uh, started to go down with the uh, uh, with the vote on this first charter school application for a religious school, uh, and it uh, uh, I I think it will be interesting to see what the attorney general uh, does or says with respect to. Uh, what what moves forward and and whether in the view of the attorney general's office it's appropriate legal proper whatever uh, I think we've seen that uh, he doesn't hesitate uh, to uh, to weigh in when he feels the uh, uh, when he feels strongly on a matter so these will be the interesting questions to watch as all of this develops because it will be a formal process and Oklahomans will be making these decisions at least in the, on the front end. 
Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org. This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by Oklahoma State Medical Association, physicians dedicated to providing and increasing access to health care for all Oklahomans. More on its vision and mission at okmed.org.